This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hello, I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to Late Boomers. Today, our special guest is Haley Shapley, author of the book, Strong Like Her, an award-winning journalist whose articles have appeared in publications such as Shape, Self, Forbes, Health, and numerous others. And I'm Mary Elkins. Haley is an Olympic superfan and exercise enthusiast. Her book is a celebration of female rule breakers, history makers, and unstoppable athletes. And she is one herself, cycling the 206 miles from Seattle to Portland, reaching the highest glaciated peak in the continental U.S., and competing in bodybuilding shows and marathons. Welcome, Haley. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you. Please tell us a little bit about your background and how it led you to the path you are on today. Yeah, well, I guess I have sort of two different backgrounds that converged to make this book possible. The first is my journalism background, um, and I have always loved reading and writing. It was a passion of mine from a young age. Uh, I was the editor of my yearbook when I was in junior high and high school. I went on to be the editor of my college newspaper, and so it was kind of just a natural progression to continue doing that as a career. And then on the other side, um, this book is a fitness history. And so I grew up playing a lot of sports. Um, I always loved to be active. And um, I, you know, I was very into basketball, swimming, tennis. Those were my main sports when I was in high school, but I also ran track and field. I uh, did gymnastics. Um, I tried ballet. So I did a lot of different things. You Um, did. And when I was growing up, you know, the focus was always on being smaller, like no one wanted to be bigger. And we didn't go into the weight room and lift weights, really. We did a little bit in swimming, go into the weight room, but we were doing all body weight exercises. And so I never really thought about being bigger or really kind of like increasing my strength. And it wasn't until I was an adult and I was like looking for a challenge, something to do that I started to lift weights. And I felt like I was seeing a lot of other women in the spotlight doing this. You know, I was I was starting to watch American Ninja Warrior and I was seeing CrossFit gyms popping up. I was seeing a lot of women on Instagram who were muscular. And so I started to wonder, how did we get to this place where it's now cool to lift weights and to be bigger instead of always trying to be smaller? So I was able to kind of marry those two things together, like my curiosity that I get from being a reporter and my love of athletics. And you mentioned like I'm an Olympic super fan, which is true. And I just, you know, I love fitness in general. And so I was able to kind of put those together. And that is what brought us Strong Like Her. 
And it's healthier too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I, it's interesting because I, uh, you mentioned I, I summited at the highest glaciated peak in the continental US, which I did right before I started strength training. And then when I was hiking after I, I had put on like more muscle, I realized it was so much easier and I was just fitter and I didn't have to put in as much work into the cardio because I just had more strength. Um, and it's made me, it's made like everyday life easier if I have to lift a box or, um, mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I had to take something yeah. back to UPS the other day up the hill, you know, half a mile. And it was a 30 pound box, but it was very wow. awkward. And it was annoying because it was hot out, but it wasn't difficult the way that it might have been before I had really started um, uh, lifting weights and just working more on the strength portion of my fitness. Well, how long did it take you to really get to the point from zero to at least partial, partial way to feeling stronger? I think it actually happens really quickly. There's something known as beginner gains. And so when you are a beginner and you really haven't done a lot of training like this, you will see progress very quickly and you'll make big jumps right at the beginning. It actually gets more frustrating the more you lift because you get used to those big jumps and then you eventually do hit a plateau where you have to work a lot harder to be able to lift more um, at some point. But I would say, you know, I could definitely tell a difference um, within a few months, probably mm. even faster than that when wow. I first started. That's great because I'm about to start and I really wanted to see it. You're, you're my role model now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Another really interesting thing I found out when I was researching this book is that we tend to think men are more um, suited to, to building strength or building muscle. But in a, a big meta analysis of strength training studies, they found that women and men who are beginners put on muscle mass at the same rate as each other. So men start with more, so they they do end up with more, but the rate at which you can gain muscle is the same across the sexes. So I think that that is um, a, just mm-hmm. a good thing to know if you're someone who thought, oh gosh, like women aren't aren't built for that, or they're not meant to put on muscle. It's not it doesn't really work that way. You do put on muscle. Um, you know, you're just starting with a bit less. Is that one of the things that surprised you um, when you were researching a strong like her? Because I know it's, it has, it deals also with the history of women and physical strength. Um, so can you yeah. tell us a little bit about that? What surprised you? Yeah, that was, I think, a little bit surprising. I think probably by the time I found that out, um, I maybe wasn't as surprised to find out about it. Um, I think one thing that did surprise me is just how recent women have really been able to to exercise recreationally. Um, so for the book, I interviewed Catherine Switzer. She was the first woman to run in the Boston Marathon as an official participant. She entered the race in 1967. And when she was growing up running, people told her her uterus would fall out. She would grow hair on her face she would look like a boy, you know, and she, you know, she'd go run around the block and like the mailman would knock on her parents' door and be like, is your daughter okay? Like, why is she 
out here running because that people didn't really start jogging for exercise until the 60s. And even then, people were not running very far distances. So even men at that time were who ran marathons were seen as kind of weird, like, why are you running so far? But it was unheard of for women to run those long distances because people, including like the medical community, told women that they would hurt their chances of fertility, they would be damaging their bodies. And that was not that long ago. Um, so I think that was yeah. really surprising to me that our ideas on that have evolved a lot in a short amount of time. And that, you know, in, in many people's lifetimes who are alive today, you, you couldn't run recreationally. Or if you did, you were seen as kind of um, being subversive. Hmm. Well, what about the ancient female athletes? There were many, weren't there? And also the Olympians. Yeah, I don't know if there were many. It's it's really hard to say, obviously, because it was in ancient times. But Strongly Curd does start in ancient Greece and looks at who the trailblazers were starting starting off with just being competitive in athletics. And there was a woman who entered the Olympics through a loophole. She won the chariot race for two de- two Olympics in a row because back then the chariot race was um, the the person who won was the person who owned the horses because you have the horses competing and, and they don't get a medal. And then you have a slave driving the actual chariot. So they don't get a medal. So it was the owner of the horses who got the medal. And Kuniska was her name. She wanted to be an Olympic champion. And so she had these horses and trained them and got the medal. And she went and had um, an inscription done, as all Olympic champions did at the time, in the Temple of Zeus. And it said something like, um, I am the first female Olympic champion. Um, so that was something she was really proud of. Um, but it was unusual for women to be involved in sports at that level. And there were even rules on the books that women could not spectate at the Olympics. If they did, they could be thrown off the side of a cliff, which oh, gosh. we don't think ever actually happened, fortunately, but it was written in the law books. Um, but wow. it did depend sort of on where you grew up. So Sparta had more opportunities for women and girls to play sports than did um, Athens, for instance. So in Athens, girls stayed in their homes. It was considered very um, uh, unbecoming to to know any men other than your brothers and your father until you got married. And so um, they did not have a lot of opportunities. But in Sparta, the philosophy was that to create strong people and a strong society, you wanted to have both a strong mother and a strong father, because that would give you a higher chance of having a strong kid. So girls in Sparta played sports. They ran, they threw balls, they um, they did other, other kind of common sports at the time. So, they swam. So um, when we look back, uh, at that time of history, not a lot is documented about the the girls who got to play sports, but um, all of the ones who did pretty much came out of Sparta. That's great. Fascinating. Can you tell us, uh, I know there's a connection between 
physical power. What's the connection between physical power and other types of power, such as mental power and political power? Yeah, that's a great question. I think often when we talk about strong women, we mean women who are really like emotionally strong, um, mentally strong. And those are super important qualities to have. But what I think it's overlooked is that physical strength can really feed into that. And that we, to be in balance, we need to sort of pay attention to all of these aspects of our lives. Um, so on the topic of political power, I have a couple of great examples in the book, but one of my favorites is about the bicycle. And this was um, something that became an absolute craze in the 1890s. Before that, the bicycle was this like death-defying contraption that only daredevils would ride. You didn't want to try it. Um, a lot of the models had like a seat that was five feet off the ground. So to dismount, you had to do a forward flip uh, to get off. Or there was one model called the bone shaker. We can imagine that that wasn't the smoothest drive. <laughs> so um, in the 1890s, the safety bicycle came out. And this is basically the same model of bicycle that we know today. There hasn't been a ton of, of bicycle innovation in that time. So it had the pneumatic tires. It had steering. Um, it had the, the pedals. Um, and it was basically something that most everyone could do. So that included women. So women started riding a bike. And as they did so, they started to raise their hemlines because it was kind of hard to ride a bike when you're wearing this full length dress. After they did that for a bit, they started to loosen the corset or even stop wearing the corset because that was also inhibiting their ability to ride the bike. And as they started to kind of get rid of some of this restrictive clothing, and as they had the opportunity to go somewhere without a chaperone and to feel that little taste of independence, they started to wonder what else they were missing out on. And this <laughs> led to the suffrage movement. Um, bicyclists were a huge uh, driver in getting women the right to vote. Sometimes they would actually go to rallies on their bicycles, but it was more of a like metaphorical thing where they were like, wow. This it's really great. I feel good in my body. I'm getting fresh air. I'm seeing my friends. Also, I'm starting to care about civic um, issues like potholes in the road because now this affects me, and I want to have a voice in my local government. Um, and so, we see that connection between once they got a little bit of physical power, they started to want a little bit of political power as well. So, I think all of these things are really intertwined. That's so interesting. That's so yeah, I was saying the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah, never thought of, <laughs> yeah, never thought of that. Um, you've told us a little bit about the history of strength training for women. How has it evolved more over the years? Yeah, well, the book, you know, kind of chronicles that. It has evolved in in a lot of different ways. I think today we see that if you go into any like high school or, or college, sports program, you're going to see people lifting weights or, or getting stronger in some kind of way, because we know now that it's really important for all kinds of sports and different sports will do different things. You might need power in one sport, whereas you might need endurance in another, but being a stronger helps for all of those things. And, um, you know, we're now seeing girls who are 
involved in these programs, getting that the benefits of that. Whereas, like I mentioned earlier, when I was growing up, we just, and it wasn't that long ago. We didn't have all of that. So um, mm-hmm. it's definitely evolved. And I think it's more acceptable now for women to be muscular. I talk in the book about the um, the power lifters and the weightlifters in the 70s. That's when it really became um, something that people started to do and activity people started to do. And then the bodybuilders of the 1980s, you know, that was very strange at first for people to see these women in swimsuits flexing that that seemed very odd to people. And it's funny when you look back on their level of muscularity now, they look like average fit women. Um, So our, our ideas about muscularity have definitely evolved from that time. Can I ask you for a little advice on if you're a beginner, um, how you advise people to just start easy and work up? How did you? It's definitely important to start slowly um, for a lot of reasons. One of them is that our muscles are capable of more than our connective tissues are. So all those like tendons and ligaments and those other really small parts of your body that you don't spend a lot of time thinking about they need a little extra time to warm up to lifting heavier weights. So you always want to ease in. And this applies if you've taken a break as well and you're getting back into it. It can feel frustrating when you're like, well, I used to be able to do X amount of weight and now I'm just doing this. But your body will thank you for it. You want to stay healthy in the long run. So I definitely recommend starting out slowly and making sure your form is on point. I think for beginners, it's really nice at first at least to have someone, um, a coach from a group class, maybe a trainer, someone to watch your form, to give you pointers, to let you know um, how it's supposed to feel, which muscles you're really supposed to be activating, because it's not necessarily a natural thing. Um, When I first Uh started lifting weights, I had a lot of trouble engaging my glutes, which is a pretty common problem because we sit so much that our glutes kind of turn off. And um, a lot of people can become kind of dominant in their quads, the front of their legs, and not so much in the back of uh, their body. Um, So learning how to kind of like engage all of those muscles is a skill that takes practice and time. And someone who, who is an expert in that can kind of guide you through that. So I think um, whether it's going to like a local CrossFit class or some kind of group exercise class or Hiring a trainer, if that's accessible to you, um, can be a good way to get started. Yeah, sounds like you really need a coach for that. Yeah, and and Haley, many women have issues about their body image because of cultural norms. So, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think there is still this idea that bulky is bad. You know, women don't want to be considered bulky, and what does that really mean? It's different for everyone. There's no kind of real definition of that. But I found that once women start to get the benefits of physical fitness, they worry a little bit less about how it's changing their body. Um, And I experienced this myself because when I first started strength training, I didn't want to get bigger. I saw women who had, you know, really defined backs and and Mm -hmm. big muscles. And I thought, that's cool. But that that's not really what I'm looking for. 
And I found within a short amount of time that I, I didn't care anymore. Like I wanted that because it represented this um, ability to, to do these things that I would like to do, you know, to be able to do pull-ups, to, um, to lift a certain amount, to climb ropes, whatever it was. So I ended up entering a bodybuilding show and actually training to look that way, which is not something I ever thought that I would have done previously. Um, yeah, and that's so not I, easy. It's hard to get that. It is hard. It really is really hard. hard. That's a funny thing too, is a lot of women worry like, oh, I'm, I'm going to get too muscular. And it's mm-hmm. actually like pretty hard to get too muscular on accident. Yeah. Of course, some people yeah. are, are genetically more predisposed to putting on muscle than others, but the average woman is not going to like accidentally look like a bodybuilder. So if you're worried <laughs> no. about that, don't worry. It's probably not going to happen overnight. And if for some reason it does, you can always pull back your training. Um, you know, there are things that you can do. So I suggest women give it a try. And I find that when people do strength train, that they start to focus more on like what their bodies can do as opposed to what they look like. I think that those thoughts, yeah. I mean, it's just encoded in our culture to think about what you look like. Um, yeah. But the mm. more that we can sort of think about other things and get away from that, the, the better, I think. Um, and so I do think strength training adds, um, or any kind of fitness really adds an element to that where you can start to focus on, well, how do I feel? Like, how do I fuel my body for these activities that I'm interested in doing instead of trying to you know, plan my intake around what I want to look like. Yeah, uh-huh. so, so true. Excellent. You, you talked about women's suffrage, but um, how did circus stars and other athletes help women gain the right to vote? Yeah, that's, I love to talk about the circus stars too. It's always a toss up between them and the bicycles because they both played a role in um, women getting the right to vote. So around the same time that women are starting to ride a bicycle for fun. The circus is a really big deal in the U.S. Um, Imagine it. Of course, there's no internet. There's no TV. There's not even radio at this time. So there's not a lot of entertainment for the masses. But when the circus came to town, that was something that you wanted to show up for. So Mm -hmm. um, it would really like shut towns down when the circus came around. And there were a few women who were stars of the circus. A lot of them, to be fair, got treated as sideshow acts and did not have a lot of power. But there was a group of them that did. And one of the women I highlight in the book is named Sanwina. And she was a strong woman. She could lift four men at a time. She could break iron bars. She could lie on a bed of nails. She was very strong. And she had grown up in a circus family. She'd been able to do handstands at the age of two. Like everyone in her family was strong. So she was, she had the genes for this. Um, But she became extremely popular because people loved coming to watch what she could do. And it was helpful that she was considered beautiful. She had a very um, pleasing face and, and she would get interviewed a lot in the newspapers and people would focus on her parenting and 
how she looked in a ball gown and some of these very like traditionally feminine things. But that sort of helped her become accepted as this really strong woman. And so she and other circus stars banded together to form suffrage groups within their individual circuses. And they would, when they traveled around, you know, they would have meetings to talk to locals about the right to vote and why this was important. So Sandwina was the VP of her suffrage group. And um, the equestrians were also very popular. There were some really popular horsewomen who um, were part of this. And because they were looked up to, because they were women who got to travel around the world, which was very difficult to do at the time. It was super expensive. We didn't have airplanes going around. Um, you know, they were considered very wise and um, worldly. And so their voices got listened to. And, and good uh, for them that they use their voice to bring yeah. that up into town. You wouldn't yeah. think that I wouldn't ever have known about that. That's fascinating. I, I I can't wait to get your book and read it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it was great. There was um one meeting I like of of a bunch of circus stars and this man came in and he was like, I'm hungry for dinner and like grabbed his wife and took her. So there was there was still plenty of misogyny going on, but the women really did raise their voices um, at a time when not a lot of women had a platform. You know, this was sort of like the one of the original platforms. We've got social media now, and and these women had this this platform that came with being in the circus. And what issues do you think women face in sports today? We've come a long way, as I think we've, you know, we've been talking about, um, but there are still issues. Uh, some of the ones I explore in the book are equal pay. Um, we see this has played out very recently with the U.S. women's soccer team and struggling to get paid equitably with what the men um, were making, even though the women have traditionally been a more successful team and actually have brought in more revenue than the men in recent years. They were struggling to get compensated equally. Uh, we see issues with maternity leave as well. A lot of uh, prominent track stars came out and spoke about this um, in the past few years, about how their contracts were cut to nothing or very little while they were on maternity leave, but the companies were still continuing to promote their images, were promoting them as mothers, were making money off of them for being mothers, but they were not paying them because you know they weren't running. And it's a very backwards way of thinking because it really often, when a, a great sports star has kids, it makes them relatable and appealing to um, to people and that sells shoes and clothes and all of that. So the women should be compensated. But um, I think it was a real big deal at the U.S. Open in tennis that it said right on the court 50-50 because yeah. they, were, they were the ones that, that started paying the women equally. Yeah, uh, Billie Jean King. Tennis is a great example. And I do talk about it, that in the book because it is one of the first sports, if not the first it's probably the first mainstream sport to pay men and women equally because Billie Jean King and her comrades did fight mm -hmm. for that in the 1970s, which is mm -hmm. quite a bit before a lot of these other sports started 
their fight for it. So you, yeah. you do see the equal prize money in the masters um, or sorry, in all of the major tournaments and women do in tennis still make less than men. Um, I think it's about 30% overall going, because not every tournament pays yeah. equally, but it's the smallest gap. It's one of the smallest gaps in sports that, yeah. that we have. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that sports that have debuted much later, like CrossFit is an example, they pay equal prize money to both men and women. This is a sport that debuted in the 2000s. They've always been paid equally. And I think people would find it very strange if men made more than women um, because it started off on that plane. But if you look at a sport where like basketball, where men have always made more money, then we Mm. think it's strange for women to want to make more money. But really, there's no reason why they shouldn't be making more. And you'll get arguments about revenue and that the game is less exciting and that it takes less talent and all of that. But really, it comes down to um, exposure and being given the opportunity to develop that talent the NBA has been around for 50 years longer than the WNBA. So that is a huge head start in terms of boys growing up and knowing that they could play professionally if they put their time into it for sponsors to get on board for, um, you know, for that talent pool to really grow. And time after time, we found that when people are exposed to women's sports, so when they can actually find it on TV, when it's treated as equally good, like in tennis. I mean, you go to those matches and and many women's matches will outsell men's matches in tennis, just kind of depending on who's playing. But um, so we found that when, when women are given sort of like equal access and equal opportunity, and they, they have that exposure that people enjoy it. Um, So I think that's, that's one issue we're facing is just getting more people to see women's sports and to understand the value. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's sure. what I, I wanted to say, because I, I wanted to know more about why you thought men's sports generated more revenue. But you've covered that. And also the percentage. I was not aware that it was a 30 percent gap. I thought it was a lot more. And do yeah, you for see tennis, for tennis? It's small. Now, for other sports, it's huge. Um, I can't remember yeah, the off NBA, the top of my head, but soccer NBA players, WNBA. Yeah, soccer players, basketball players, hockey players, softball versus baseball players. These are huge gaps in pay. But tennis and golf actually are much smaller gaps because they they just got more of a head start on having women on that equal playing field. And they have a bigger audience right now. So is is the answer in, uh, in creating more equitable pay for women increasing the audience? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. I think it's increasing the investment in order to increase the audience and the opportunities and all of that. But, you know, I think um, when, like, it's important to note back in soccer, which we were talking about, like, the number one selling jersey on Nike's website a few years ago was the women's team jersey, not the men's team jersey. So there's not you know, people will say, well, men's athletes are, male athletes are better. Um, and they're just more fun to watch. And why would I want the apparel of a, of a woman? But when people are exposed to the women's game, they're equally excited about it. 
Oh, I love the women's games myself, but that's because I grew up with a daughter that was playing basketball straight through and it was just wonderful to watch. I got so used to watching girls sports and then we started going to the WNBA, you know, it was, I love it. But what do you think accounts, getting back to strength training, what do you think accounts for the influx of women to strength sports that we've seen over the past decade and kind of define what strength sports are? Yeah. What are are they? That's a good question. So strength sports are things like powerlifting. That includes the bench press, the deadlift, and the back squat. Um, Weightlifting, sometimes called Olympic weightlifting, um, involves two lifts. One is called the clean and jerk and one is called the snatch. We typically tend to see this at the Olympics um, is when it's usually on TV. Um, Other strength sports would be like Obstacle course racing, I would consider to be like a hybrid strength sport, endurance sport. Um, bodybuilding is another strength sport. Um, so anything where you're lifting heavy weights as part of the act. Well, yeah, because in bodybuilding, you're not doing it on stage, but you have to in order to get on stage. Whereas in the other two that I mentioned, you are actually doing that activity on stage. Um mm-hmm. What has accounted for the rise in it? I think that's a really good question. I think that part of it is just exposure to it. Um, I think social media has actually played a role um, because I think that you can see people doing those activities now. Like before we only had kind of magazines and, and TV to show us what people looked like and what the trends were and all of that. And now it's much more democratized. So whoever your tribe is, you can find them online. And if you're someone who is interested in strength sports, you can absolutely find role models online, which would have been much more difficult in previous generations. Oh, that's a good point. I think that you're able to see, um, I just know in my own personal feed, I had a lot more women popping up who were strong and, and showing, showing their muscularity. And on YouTube as well, a lot of YouTube channels devoted to that. So I think social media plays a role. Um, I think I've talked about it a couple of times, but I think CrossFit plays a role that was founded in the mid 2000s. And a lot of people have been exposed to it. And it has about a 50-50 participation split between men and women. So it's something that feels welcoming, I think, to women, whereas a lot of weight rooms used to be very male-dominated. Um, I talk in the book, in the 1970s, you had to basically had, have an invitation to get into a weight room if you were a woman. So you had to be dating someone who was a lifter or otherwise connected to someone. You couldn't just wander in. Um, and we don't have that anymore. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have an invitation. Everyone is welcome into a weight room. So I think that has played a role. Like women have been able to try it out. We've really seen like a rise in boutique fitness culture. So there's just a lot of different um, fitness activities that people are trying. And I think uh, some of those are focused on strength, at least in some form. And then once people get exposed to a little of it, then they go and seek out other activities. Um, so I think those are some of the reasons why we've seen this rise. Good analysis. 
Yeah, great. What what about older women who've never done it, who are still exposed to the old uh, cultural norms? How would you advise them to get into strength training? Yeah, one of my favorite people I interviewed for the book, I actually ran into her in an airport. We were in Chicago, and I was on my way back from Iceland, where I had Mm -hmm. run a lap of the Ultra World Championship, which was crazy. Like I was running up this icy mountain and carrying these huge buckets of gravel and I was not equipped for it. I mean, I I did fine, but I had, I went there as a journalist with three days notice. So it wasn't something I had trained for, but I made it through. It was fun. And I'm on my way back and I meet this gentleman, this older gentleman. And he asked sort of like, what what I was doing. And I told him about it. And he was like, you should meet my wife. She's really strong. And so she comes back from wherever she was. And she's in her 80s. And she told me that she had started strength training a few years earlier, because she was frustrated that when she wanted to get the kitty litter off the shelf, she was not strong enough to put it into her cart. And this really bothered her. So she went to a gym, she actually won Uh, like one month passed to a gym and a raffle right uh, around this time. And she went to the gym and she realized like there were a lot of things she couldn't do, like getting off the floor without some kind of support. Um, She was getting tired walking to the mailbox or standing to cook. And so she started to lift just a little bit at a time. And she got to the point where she could deadlift I think it was 181 pounds, something like that on her 81st birthday. I might Uh, have those numbers slightly off, but she was just beaming with pride telling me about this. And I loved it. It was so great um, to hear how her life had been impacted by this and how it is not ever too late to start. Because she had done drill team when she was in high school, but she had never done anything like this before. And... I interviewed a lot of elite athletes for the book. I feature portraits of them throughout the book. And it's it's great to talk about Sandwina and Catherine Switzer and these athletes who really pushed the envelope. But I think what's important is to realize like you can be a regular person and get a lot of benefits from this. You don't have to be breaking world records or competing at an elite level to really improve your life and and to reap the benefits. So I think she's just a wonderful example of someone who did that at an older age. Um, And I think I'd give the same advice for someone who is older as I would for anyone. Start slowly, work within your limitations, um, and find, find someone to guide you, at least at first, so that you are doing everything safely. Um, Fortunately, like the fitness industry does have more knowledge now about different populations. So you can find people who specialize in um, postmenopausal women, for instance, um, or other or or even pregnant women, you know, uh, different groups that might have different needs um, Mm -hmm. versus like a general population. So I love that. It it seems like it would help people live longer and it hopefully will influence our culture and our society. Do you see that happening? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really, it's especially important for older women to do some kind of resistance training. And this doesn't have to be lifting weights necessarily. It could be anything that provides resistance. So that could be 
dumbbells. It could be resistance bands. Um, it could even be doing things like a push up or a plank where your uh, muscles are opposing gravity, basically, because women are at such a high risk for osteoporosis. And if you can keep your bones strong, that really helps your longevity and, you know, just your quality mm -hmm. of life. Um, so, yeah, I do think, you know, earlier we talked about how important um, or what the connection is between physical strength, emotional, mental, social, all of that health. And I, I think just lifting can be really empowering and just being pursuing any kind of fitness can be really empowering. And I think that that only feeds positive things to the other aspects of your life. So um, I continue to hope that people find it and, you know, find fitness and um, appreciate these trailblazers who have allowed for us to even be able to work out today, because it's something that we might take for granted. But it's not was not always possible. And we have things like Title IX in the 1970s to really thank for that as well. Billie Jean King to thank for that. And all these other women who I spotlight in the book. Yeah. Um, and what would you like our audience to have as a takeaway today? You gave a, quite a bit of it just <laughs> yeah. now. Just now. But anything yeah. else come to mind? A little advice for the people you know, listening? I guess I just hope the takeaway is that people think about strength in a different way and learn something about those connections between physical strength and other aspects of our lives. I hope that they think more about the women and the impact they've made on society, like we talked about with um, getting the right to vote. Um, I think what this book was about for me was challenging the messages you've been given for your entire life. Um, so learning to think critically about something like I was always told women in our family don't have upper body strength and that's a message I just accepted uncritically. Um, and it doesn't have to be true. So I think there are a lot of messages we get about all kinds of different things that we don't tend to examine. So I, I hope people take the time to think mm -hmm. about like what messages might be limiting you that you haven't really tested. That's Thank great. you. That's so true. It is so true. And and I think women all over the world, when they listen to our podcast, will take note of this. Thank you so much, Haley. Our guest thank today you. in Late Boomers. Our guest, thank you. Our guest today in Late Boomers has been Haley Shapley, author of Strong Like Her, journalist, Olympic superfan, and definitely exercise enthusiast for herself and all. You can reach Haley on her website, HaleyShapley.com. And for all our listeners, you can watch us on YouTube now on our Late Boomers podcast channel. Please subscribe to the Late Boomers podcast on our YouTube channel. And please give us a five-star review on the podcast platform that you listen to. Also, you can follow us on Instagram at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins and at Late Boomers. Send us a DM or drop us a line on our website, lateboomers.biz. We always strive to inspire, motivate, and entertain you. Thanks again, Haley. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers. 
podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact.